My oldest daughter, her name is Madeline, and she's a very attentive young girl. She's always been uh, fairly skeptical about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And she said, Daddy, are you going to be around forever? And I said, "Uh, the the truth is no. And it it was a real shock. David Sinclair is a scientist at Harvard in the Department of Genetics and the founder of the company Metro Biotech. He's also a father. She said, does that mean our pets will die, our dog? Yes. The fish, yes. And then you could see that she was, uh, you know, realizing perhaps even she one day would, would die. When we grow up, we learn to accept death. We say it's what gives life meaning, what makes it precious. It's a child who asks, why does life have to end? Uh, I thought it was a very good question. I'm a scientist. Uh, she is scientifically minded, and I thought it was a good question to ask. Like so many childish questions, it's both naive and profound. And David Sinclair has devoted his career and his lab at Harvard to answering it. We know how we age. We know what goes wrong. But then the big question is, why do we age? We've been working in my lab now for 20 years on this. And I think we've solved it. That is an absurdly big claim. But if David Sinclair is right, a combination of biological and technological interventions are on the verge of extending the average human lifespan to 150 years old, 200 years old, and beyond. But wait. History and literature teach us over and over again that those who seek eternal life wind up disappointed if they're lucky. The Spanish conquistador Ponce de Leon went looking for the fountain of youth in the jungles of an unfamiliar continent. All he found was Florida. In the Oscar Wilde book, Dorian Gray succeeds in outsourcing the aging process to an oil painting. He dies, tortured, decrepit, suicidal. As for Tuck Everlasting, well, this is not a crying podcast, so I won't get into it. Science might have brought us to the edge of immortality, but what the hell would we even do with that? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. Can you describe to me how we age? Like, on the surface, I know our wrinkles are deepening, our hair turns gray, but at the molecular level, what's happening? There are eight recognized hallmarks of aging that occur as we get older, and these are what really drive the diseases that most of us will will die from. For example, we lose mitochondria, our cellular battery packs, and that saps our mojo. We lose stem cells that make pigment so our hair grays. Telomeres, the caps at the end of our chromosomes, fray, causing cells to lose function. We think that essentially all of these processes that occur over time are due to one major defect as we get older. Essentially, aging is epigenetic or information loss. When a cell divides, it has to make a full copy of its data, its DNA. As we age, this copy-paste process breaks down. As a result, cellular division in older people produces more mistakes, more waste, worse information. And what's essentially going on is that 
uh, the DNA, the genes in each cell are not read at the right time uh, or the right place as we get older and cells lose their identity. When we become too old to reproduce, all of the systems to keep us alive slowly go haywire. Aging isn't a punishment. It's evolution's way of saying, sorry, I just stopped paying attention. And every species seems to have a specific limit to its natural lifespan. But some scientists want us to think about aging not as a natural process, but as something else. I think of it more as a constellation of diseases um, that we call aging. We usually hear about them as age-related diseases like cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's or cancer. Um, but if you were to remove each of those, that the aging would potentially stop. Daisy Robinson is a scientist at Boston Children's Hospital who has researched and spoken often about life extension. But could scientists really extend nature's limit? Yes, we have, um, in a number of different organisms, actually. For example, there was an experiment done with flies. In this project, the researchers actually changed some of the genes to clear away the damaged mitochondria. And what they found was that in the female flies, they saw an extension of lifespan by roughly 20%. And in male flies, they had something like 10 to 15% life extension. Is there one experiment that is most famous in the scientific community for extending some creature's life? Huh. Um, <laughs> what comes to mind when you ask me that is the parabiosis experiment that was done by Amy Wager's lab at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, where they sewed together two mice. One was young and one was old, so that their circulatory systems were joined. And what this did was it allowed the blood from the young animal to circulate through the older animal and vice versa. And what they observed was that when you got this influx of young blood into the older animal, they saw greater muscle strength and other signs of youthfulness in the older animals, um, which I think is an experiment that both because it was slightly grotesque, but also because it had such remarkable results. Slightly really, grotesque? Maybe very grotesque. That is the grotesque. creepiest, most amazing thing I've heard all day. <laughs> they yeah. sewed the mice to each other. Yes, yes, their circulatory systems were joined. And the older mice were rejuvenated. To be clear, this doesn't mean we should sow human teenagers to old rich people. But it does suggest something important. Perhaps maximum lifespans aren't an ironclad law of nature. Maybe they're more like a suggestion. I think that we're on the cusp of having another revolution in the way that we're approaching human health and wellness in a way that will have a significant impact on the lifespan of humans and, and more importantly on the health span of humans and just allowing people to live healthier lives for longer. We've extended the natural lifespan of flies, of mice, even of yeast. David Sinclair is trying to do the same for humans. Aging is a disease. Okay. Uh, and and I, have, I have absolutely no doubts that it's a disease. It's just because it's such a common thing, we tend to accept it as natural, just the way we used to accept cancer as a natural course of life as well. So moving from the disease to the cure, I, I know that dieting and exercise are good for you. But what I don't understand is exactly how do diet and exercise extend our lives? Like how at the molecular level do they make us healthier? 
all life forms on the planet have these what we call longevity genes. Uh, they're billions of years old and they respond to adversity. Okay, a little bit of hunger, a little bit of exercise, very good. Your body's turning on these innate defenses. But if we sit around all day and we eat a lot, the body says, hey, good times, no need to protect our body. And so these longevity or what I call vitality genes, they switch off and we, we lose our ability to fight disease. Starvation, overexertion, those will kill you. But the moderate version of each activity is just stressful enough to activate our longevity genes. The cliche is true. It's really just a matter of what doesn't kill you actually makes you stronger and longer lived. Diet and exercise work by activating our longevity genes. But if we could find a molecule that does the same thing, we could create a pill that mimics the effects of diet and exercise. Sinclair has pinpointed a molecule called NAD. If aging is information loss between cells, more NAD seems to prevent information loss. Our prediction was that we should be able to mimic the benefits of diet and of exercise. In other words, if we took an old mouse that was two years old, the equivalent of a 65-year-old human, and gave it our molecule that would raise NAD, we should see that they become essentially younger and fitter, and if you put them on a treadmill, they could run further. And that's exactly what happened. The only surprise was how fast and effective it was. Within just a week of giving this molecule to the mice, just putting it in their drinking water, the NAD levels went up and they could run one and a half times further. And it looked exactly as though we'd been training them on little treadmills, but we hadn't. They got the benefits of exercise without even having to exercise themselves. Without actually dieting or exercising? That's exactly right. Did it work on all of the mice that you experimented with? Uh, all the mice responded really well and they were all running further. And the interesting thing about it was that when we looked at their muscles under the microscope, we could see they had built new blood vessels for the oxygen to get to the muscle. And that's exactly what happens when you run. You get more blood flow. And that's a really important thing because a lack of blood flow is a major cause of most diseases of aging. It doesn't have to be the muscle. It could be your brain, your liver. And uh, how many of us know older people who are getting frail, don't have enough energy, can barely get enough oxygen to their tissues, they get wounds that don't heal? This can reverse that, we think. Not just extend life, but reverse the effects of aging. Sinclair is currently testing this drug at Harvard Medical School. He says it already works on humans. And the proof? Well, okay, so my, I'll, in, by full admission... Uh... I'll just tell you, Sinclair is doing a little private experiment. What I've been taking as a few molecules for the last uh, 10 years, actually... Uh, I started with resveratrol, which is the one from red wine that we showed many years ago had anti-aging properties. And I've since gone on to this one that makes the mice run further. You, sir, are taking this mouse drug? Uh, 100%. I have no qualms about admitting that. It all started several years ago. Sinclair went to a clinic that measures biomarkers, like inflammation, testosterone, liver function. The lab said he had the biological profile of somebody who was 58 years old. Sinclair was 47. So then I went on this combination of molecules, uh, took the test three months later, and the results came back at my age being 31.4. And that wow. was a good, good day. And David isn't the only Sinclair on this drug. His wife is taking these pills. His brother is taking them. My father is also 
taking the molecules. And actually, first thing he noticed was that about two years ago, he didn't groan as he got out of bed. And then the pain that he felt in his knees and his fingers, you know, typical old age in your 70s, that went away. David Sinclair's biomarkers have improved. His father's energy has rebounded. But what does all this mean, really? How big could the implication of this research be? Is this it? The beginning of the path to eternal life? If you asked me this two years ago, I would have said, it's impossible to live forever. It's just too hard and this information that we lose over time in our bodies, too hard to restore it. But uh, there are results that have come out from labs in the last two years. I actually think it will be possible one day to be immortal, to live forever. And that's a really big thing for me to say. I don't think it'll happen in our lifetimes. I think that that's going to be for future generations to figure out. But I don't see any reason why a child that's born today couldn't make it to 150. 150? Yeah. Put it this way. Even if we don't succeed in these drugs, a child that's born today in the U.S. can expect to have a better than 50% chance of living to 104 With these medicines, even if one of them succeeds, why couldn't people on average live to 120 and beyond? To be honest, Sinclair made me feel both inspired and a little skeptical. So I called up a few other scientists just for a gut check. Some said Sinclair could be a bit dramatic. Others said they were generally pessimistic about extending human lifespans. But no one disagreed with the validity of Sinclair's research the science. Do you want to live forever? Oh, good question. You know, it depends on who else is living forever. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, forever's a long time. I would definitely double my own lifespan, but I'm not sure about forever. What would you do with a doubled lifespan? I think I would iterate my hobbies and career over and over and do lots of different things and try lots of different lifestyles. Already, I feel like I have more interests than I have time for. I think it would be so fun and wonderful to just create music and art and live a sort of true artist's lifestyle. And I feel like the times when you really devote yourself into a craft is when you get the most inspiration and the most motivation. And so I'd love to have, you know, a period of my life that's just a renaissance of creativity. More time with our grandparents. More time to experiment in our careers. A renaissance of creativity. Life extension sounds pretty wonderful. But there's a catch. Call it the Tithonus problem. In Greek myth, Zeus grants Tithonus eternal life. But the deal doesn't include eternal youth. After hundreds of years, miserable, begging for death, he shrivels into a cicada. Modern science has a Tithonus problem. In states with older populations like Arizona, rates of Alzheimer's disease are projected to increase by more than 40% in the next decade. In the last 20 years, survey data shows that the share of our lives spent in good health is going down as we live longer. What if an anti-aging pill simply extends the lifespan of people who barely know they're alive? We've been really successful at keeping the heart pumping with pacemakers and cardiovascular drugs, uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs, but we have been really pathetic. In fact, I would say complete failures in protecting the brain from aging. 
And so what we're ending up with is a whole bunch of uh, older people who are living the worst nightmare possible, which is uh, being quite uh, alive and healthy, except they've lost their minds. Extending life without extending quality of life is not a miracle. It's misery. But a couple hundred miles south of Sinclair's lab, somebody's working on it. We have the technology today to measure which neurons in your brain become active when you're going to form a memory. Eternal life, meet eternal memory. After this. David Sinclair believes he is developing a drug that could extend human lifespans by years, maybe decades. But to find the holy grail from memory, he's going to need some help. My name is Justin Sanchez. I'm the director of the Biological Technologies Office at DARPA. DARPA, the high-tech research branch of the Defense Department. If you want to know what they've done, pick up your phone. The internet, GPS, microelectronics, touchscreen technology— It all sprang from tech developed by DARPA for the military. So one part of our national security mission is that we think deeply and we care deeply about military personnel. From the Biological Technologies Office, I think about their brains, how their brains are involved in everything that they do, every mission that they carry out. And I also think very deeply about if those people, 20-somethings from all across our country, get injured— in service of our country and their brain gets injured, what kind of technologies can we develop and put into play to help them recover that lost brain function? We've had a few breakthroughs. Sanchez is developing a technology called Direct Neural Interface. Sensors the width of a human hair are placed in injured people's brains. The sensors are connected to computers that can read what neurons are doing. One application is for memory. In one experiment, scientists asked people with memory loss to look at images like tree, car, and dog. There are neurons in there that produce one pattern of activity for a tree. They may produce another pattern of activity for a car. Uh, They may produce a a third uh, kind of activity for uh, the image of a dog. We can read out all of these patterns. When patients struggled to remember dog, scientists could stimulate the neurons associated with the memory of dog. The proof that your neurotechnology is ultimately working is that if you give this kind of minute stimulation back to, let's say, the hippocampus, does a person recall the memory that they were trying to form, uh, and can you make an assessment of that? And the people that have really low memory, when they get the brain stimulation while they're trying to form their memory, they actually have better performance uh, when they're trying to recall. Sanchez and his team at DARPA have used direct neural interfaces to improve memory. What trauma has taken away from these minds, Sanchez has restored. It's thrilling to imagine how this, combined with Sinclair's age-reversing drugs, could extend our youth. More health, better memory, longer lives. Who could possibly be against all this? Most of the really nice people that I know kind of want to die. Joey Ito, 
the head of the MIT Media Lab. He says the kind of people who are really interested in living forever are the sort of people you'd rather didn't. I would say there are quite a few people who, you know, who, who believe that there is a larger than 50% chance that they're going to, well, they're going to live as long as they want to. Have you met them? Are they your friends? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, I'm reticent to call them out. And I'm going to hate to use the word cult, but it's, it's almost religious in that, you know, it's, it's assuming a series of breakthroughs come at sort of a rate that they're coming now. And so, so I don't think that, that more powerful computers and more bioengineering is going to make us any better at dealing with these complex problems. So I think that we're going to hit a limit to which efficiency and science are going to contribute to our well-being. When I think about the downsides of extreme old age, my mind goes to economics. Roughly half of federal spending already goes to seniors through health care and social security. If 65-year-olds are at the halfway mark of their lifespans, it would require radical changes to how government works. Ito sees even more problems. First, like all technology, life extension will be unevenly distributed. Life extension is probably going to end up in the hands of the rich first, right? So, so, so I think it will aggravate social inequity, like climate, social inequality, and health systems. Second, the promise of eternal life might appeal to all the wrong people. People will be in power longer because they won't have to retire. So I think that's one element. I think it's going to change the nature of politics and power. Can you imagine 150-year-old Putin? Third, the extended reign of the world's worst people won't just be bad for governments. It'll be bad for companies, colleges, every institution that benefits from turnover of leadership. Science moves forward at one funeral of a professor at a time because professors tend to get locked into their ways and get in the way of, uh, of new innovation and of new ideas. And, and I think new ideas come from fresh brains. And so we will you know, stifle the natural renewal of, of the vessels of knowledge and creativity. And so I think life extension and immortality is going to be yet another thing that may feel great for some people, but it broadly will probably be a drag for society. This vision of immortality is all about preserving the physical body allowing the most powerful people in the world to squash new ideas and extend their reign. But what if there was another way? Okay, so here, here's the next part of, of uh, the story here. Justin Sanchez again. If you could, let's say, start to capture your memories throughout your life and kind of record them in a computing architecture and then not only recall them for yourself later, but maybe even share them with your family or your friends— all of what I just said there doesn't exist today, but I think the foundations of what we're doing may open up the possibility of even considering something like that in the future. If our memories are neural signatures, Sanchez says, perhaps one day we could turn them into digital signatures. And if you and I share the same neural tech, maybe we could exchange them like files without even speaking. And now imagine if everybody had this. We could upload our thoughts publish them, share them. It would be like an internet of memories. I'd much rather have my consciousness join a sort of virtual collective thought 
then this body be in charge of a bunch of assets, increasing its influence and wealth. It's a kind of immortality. It is. It is absolutely, it's an immortality of spirit over cellular immortality. In David Sinclair's grand theory of life, aging is information loss. As our cells reproduce in old age, they slowly lose the DNA data that gives them their integrity, their identity. Sinclair thinks if we can find a way to preserve that information as it passes on to the next cell, we can live to 150, and maybe forever. In a funny way, Joey Ito agrees. Death is information loss. Not just between cells, not just within one body. Death is information loss between people. We live as long as we are remembered. We're gone when others forget us. And that means, yes, death is optional. The scientist and the philosopher agree. Imagine that your great-great-great-grandchild would have your memory played back to them, you know, 200 years in the future. And there you are, right? You're now alive. Alive again. The truth is that immortality is inconceivable today and probably forever. And thank God, because that could be terrifying. But scientists who see aging as the ultimate disease, they don't scare me. If they shoot for an average human lifespan of 150 and fall 50 years short, that'll still be an astonishing scientific achievement. But in the end, I'm with Joey Ito. I want to live a long life, and then I want to die. And in the interim, I want to do things that are worth being recalled then who knows, maybe one day in the future, we'll get something like Justin Sanchez's imagined technology. Something that helps people literally see my memories, live them. I'll be there, but not there. Alive, again. Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Kash Mihailovic. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Special thanks to Matt Thompson and a special thanks to Jan Vidge for his expertise. If you like what you just heard, please take a minute to review us on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way you can help us get noticed and heard by other people. See you next week. <laughs>